Welcome to episode 282 of Fintech Insider. We are coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork, Devonshire Square. Today's show is where we all get to make fools of ourselves by predicting things that will never actually happen. Um, I'm joined by all my colleagues today. I'm joined by Simon, David, Jason, Ross and Lida. How are we all? We are all good. Is this, this is because it's the day after the Christmas party, so the woos are a little bit muted. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> More ale. Um, More ale. But before we start looking into our crystal balls, I'm going to ask you to all tell me your favourite fintech moment from 2018. And we're going to start with David. Just Ooh. because he's just taken a drink. Yeah, bad, bad time to take a drink there, wasn't it? Um, I th- oh, this has been so many. This year has been pretty fruitful, hasn't it, all just the way through? One. I know, just I know, one. I know, I know. Um, but Don't I, I steal think mine. My one has to be, um, I think, things like what we've seen with the Thought Machine and Lloyds Banking Group partnership, um, and actually the partnership that we've done with DMB as well. So we're seeing big banks realise that the uh, the actual problem is the thing that they need to be addressing rather than the symptoms. So we're seeing people addressing that disease that is big, old, terrible legacy technology uh, and doing it in a way that's actually quite different. So rather than just going to the big incumbent suppliers in this space, they're actually looking at what it is that they're selling and probably realizing those magic beans are not going to be fixing it. So the penny uh, has dropped. It does feel like that. And it's going to, it's, to be honest, it's going to be really interesting to see how many more follow suits. You know, obviously people like Mambu have been really kind of making quite a, a, an interesting sort of dent around the periphery on this space. But, you know, now that, you know, Lloyd's have done what they've done and DMB have done what they've done. I wonder how many more people are going to be following suit. Jason, you're next. Um, Well, it's probably going to be no surprise that some of my favourite fintech moments this year have been around Monzo, my uh, former team for Uh, Compadre. uh, Big surprise. Up to a million customers, valued at over a billion, um, becoming that that fintech unicorn. You know, I remember back in the day, there were so many questions as to whether this uh, prepaid card with a nice app was really going to do anything in the market. It'll never catch on. Those kids and their pink, hot hot coral pink cards. Um, So it's been quite amazing to see that hypothesis play out because it was always this hypothesis of, of, look, at switching rates. No one's switching. It's just, you know, infinitesimally small. And so will someone who comes along that isn't offering a massive financial reward really be able to attract customers? And that was the hypothesis that we saw, you know, play out. And I think... That's part of the reason that we're seeing now a lot of the big incumbents say, well, actually, you know, we, we need to hedge our bets here. We need to be on the right side of things. And maybe we do need to look at our core banking systems and the, the kinds of services we offer or structure in a way that new fintech structure in order to deliver. So I think that's been, been my favorite moment. OK, Ross, you're up. Um, so I think I'm going to go with the Adian IPO. Um, pretty huge moment on on the fintech front um, this year. So um, IPO'd at a value of $8.3 billion. For anyone that doesn't know Adyen, they're the um, fintech uh, payments processor that um, rivaled PayPal. They they do the payment processing for brands like Uber, Netflix, Spotify, even replaced uh, PayPal as eBay's payment processor. Damn. I know, um, and, and how much? Say that number again, because it was a big number. So they um, they IPO'd at a value of eight point three billion dollars. Wow! So I mean, that's why I picked it. It shows the art of the possible. Right? Wow! Um, Take that, Monzo! Only a billion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right. No fighting at this early on, guys. Um, and and that said, so first day of trading, they finished shares finished uh, up ninety percent on that as well. So wow, um, wow that's a pop. Yeah, really. All right, leader, what you got for us? Um, on a on a personal level, it has to be Foundry. Um, it's still fintech. You're allowed going. to do that. It is it is fintech, but David went there first. Uh, so I'm not going to repeat all of that. But uh, but we have to take a step back and go. Oh my God, we've we've started this, and it's it represents everything we believe the industry needs and everything we are. And it's a very very exciting thing to have landed, and and, and more to come uh, on that. Um, but also on a very different level, for me, the best of 2018 was all the stuff that was happening and we were not going wow about it because so many awesome companies are coming of age and quietly scaling to something that we forget was a startup very recently and um, spotlight on something like Duco. I've been a big fan over the years. And you look at them now and you forget that a couple of years ago you would put them in the same bucket as all those sort of young, shiny things. And although they remain young and shiny, you look at them now and it's a grown-up company. And for me, this coming of age moment that we really have seen in, in 2018 is is, uh, is really wonderful to see. Brilliant. Uh, Simon? 
So on a personal level, I got engaged, which was kind of huge. You chose to ignore the vintage thing. You chose to leave her and do the opposite. Yeah, I just, I'm just going the other way. No. Do, you, do you know what I'm mainly disappointed? I'm mainly disappointed about that is that you didn't propose over the podcast. Yeah, like, indeed. We if should, you really planned that through, we that could have live streamed it. Yeah. We could have got yeah more downloads. It's and, kind of huge. Engagements and weddings are full of of uh, financial transactions, including some big ring, which I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I was able to plan my finances because I was in able to track my everyday spend. <laughs> Um, But actually, no, realistically, it's actually Marcus launching in the UK. Um, And Marcus generally, I think this is the first time we've seen an incumbent do really play to its strengths and play to fintech strengths. They did both because you can try and copy what a fintech does and do it not quite as well, or you can do what you do really well and take lessons from fintech. And I think they did that second thing. They did a best of both. And that to me stood out. Brilliant. Um, so some wonderful moments there. I, I won't repeat Simon, though we all know that I, I have a love affair with Marcus. Um, but yes, we do. Does your man know this? He does. There was a whole podcast on it. I can't remember which episode it was. Um, but I think my moment is actually the fact that the big banks, certainly in the UK, are, are the fast followers now. And they're doing things in such a way that people are being introduced without realising it's fintech. So if you look at the fact that nearly every major bank in the UK now, you can freeze your card. Now, I know they didn't do that first, but my mum knows what that is. She also knows that she can pay a check-in through Halifax on her app. She also knows that she can you know, use Barclays and turn off if she doesn't want to spend any more money on Amazon. All those things which we take for granted and we go, oh, we've already had that, we've had that for ages. Actually, it's doing what fintech is supposed to do and introducing these features to everybody and helping everybody use them. Um, And I actually, I can't wait to see more of that. I I don't think it has to be one or the other. I think that everybody can learn from everybody. So the more we we see that, the better. Well, we're definitely seeing that resetting, aren't we? You know, we, I think we've been saying that for a couple of years on this podcast, that actually the the fintech players are kind of resetting that boundary, aren't they? And really, like, it's happened. You know, the NPS score for Monzo is like a million points higher than what you know that's, uh, that's one of the small wins that jason didn't pick up actually is that monzo actually toppled first direct as, as britain's favorite uk lender they've been on the top for like almost yeah. a decade right so. all right so we've we've talked about what we liked this year now we're going to get our crystal balls out we're going to talk about each of us are going to talk about our, our fintech prediction for 2019 i'm going to start because i went last last time and it's always hard to go last um so I think on the back of what I have just said, we're going to see consolidation in the UK retail challenger banking market. I don't mean the banks per se. I mean, there are so many people out there doing things in the banking industry that I don't think there's necessarily room for every single one of those. Um, so we, you know, we're likely to see, I think, some of the big banks will go in and buy some of the new bank entrants, some of those people providing you know, periphery services, whether that's whether that's PFM, whether that's a sweep the change, whether that's micro investing. Um, and I, I think that the point that Simon made about Marcus um, is actually that's going to bump some of those smaller players out of the way as well, because Marcus has clout. It's done what it's done very, very well. It has clout. It has money behind it. It has brand. That, that is already going to sweep up a huge amount of the We've industry. also seen fintech acquire fintech, so tandem acquired parity. Um, and you see this sort of smaller fintech player gobbled up by a larger fintech player. So it's not just the banks acquiring the fintechs and or you, know, you see yeah. this this consolidation of capability because, you know, are you a full suite of product or are you a, a feature? feature? Yeah. The product or feature argument is one that I think is going to continue. And I think it's just M&A activity generally in this space is going to pick up. When we talk about, you know, the valuations of Adyen, you talk about the valuations of Robinhood, um, you know, Izettle and PayPal, not quite there yet. I think the CMA has had some words about that. But all of that is a trend, that kind of grouping together of these services. Well, well you also see different uh, verticals in this, like uh, robo-advice. You, you see suddenly the the winners come from the pack. So there'll be a whole number that start together. Some will obviously take take the lead. And then what happens for number four, five, and six? Well, they're going to really struggle to, to raise unless they come up with something really different. So actually, one thing you do see in the, the VC space is this uh, survival of the fittest and actually those that don't survive are then eaten by you know the winners or or other other bigger animals that come along and want to enter that space so that move by scalable capital when it sort of stopped going direct to consumer and started to to provide services for big banks i think there's some really interesting moves what happens later on in that pack uh, for, for companies that aren't quite succeeding but uh, would struggle to get a massive series a or b 
I wonder on that whether it's it's other geographies though. Like the UK has been a bit of a Galapagos island when it comes to sort of fintech innovation, hasn't it? And actually, we've started to see basically the ripples of that out to other areas. So you know, everything that's happening in Australia right now is basically where we were in 2010, right? Shout uh, out for Zinja who got their banking license today. <laughs> yeah, but, but but there's no harm in that. Like we, you know, we talk about still with pride a lot. Like go to the place where the thing has happened and then take all those goodies back. You know, it used to be Silicon Valley. Now it's probably like you know. Old Street Roundabout, right? You know, I think with the exception of, of people. So when you talk about M and A, you sort of have all different types, don't you, of, of mergers and acquisitions. And with the exception of kind of the acqui hires, where you acquire something for the, the team, hmm. there's very little that can't. And this is going to sound awful and very brutal, but sort of be, be stripped for parts. There's technologies in there. There's there's IP which can be moved, as you said. Yeah. So there's, there's no, you know, a Zinja buying a smaller player in the UK, taking their ideas and their technology out to Australia. That's entirely possible. My, well, we've been talking about the fact that they the way that the space is behaving is not sustainable. It's an amazing moment in time of creativity, growth, and the art of the possible, but the numbers of companies and the amount of overlap, the competition for headspace in a market that, if anything, is not growing, right? The buying market is not growing. Um, It was always going to come to a gear change, and we have all feared an implosion. And what we're saying is actually it's not going to be an implosion. It's going to be quite orderly and, and, and leave you know, sort of a better shape of things um, in its wake. But it's definitely going to be a massive change. It's just not. And you can go back to the industrial revolution and the, the big companies that started there and suddenly consolidated or even back to, you know, the birth of the fangs. Uh, there was a point at which they weren't the obvious leaders. And now there's, you know, they are the uh, exit strategy of many a startup that's just going to be acquired and, you know, like the Borg into the <laughs> next week. Uh, <laughs> I, I like the, 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 the range of references there from the yeah, industrial revolution exactly. through to Star Trek. If, if you're playing the uh, media kind of, uh, <laughs> quiz tonight, then uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think the, the challenge to that, though, especially for the big incumbent organizations, is that actually it's like, um, it's like buying a ready meal. Like, you know, I might get you know, sweet and sour chicken, but I don't know how to cook it. So like the problem that you've actually got at that space is that actually, can they manage and maintain the thing that they actually procure? Because if you go and buy a, a challenger bank or you buy a, you know, a, an accounting package or whatever it type type of thing that it or might simple be. simple and whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Or a BPC and Fedor yeah, as exactly. well. Like, how, and they that's a cultural clash. I agree. How, how do you not smash up the thing that you've spent a bunch of money on in the first place because it's only as good as the way that it was performing and it was probably performing that way because of talent and culture uh, and there I think are probably the two things that big banks still well, don't understand. I didn't say how it was going to happen I just said it was going to happen. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> you have a dead zone when it comes to M&A right anything below sort of 99% ownership and anything above 20% ownership so if you are uh, kind of a majority uh, shareholder in any way shape or form above the 38% you've kind of got to make an offer to acquire anyway Above 20%, it's subject to a lot of your controls as a large bank. So you might as well have acquired the thing at that point. So that creates this interesting set of challenges about, well, I can learn, but I can, I have to allow it to ex- succeed as large organization without me for a period of time. So how do I invest differently than just taking these investment pot shots and um, or more, more like gambling and spread betting? When does that come back into the core or does it? Does it just become part of a portfolio? Well, do, you want, do you want to tell us about your prediction, Simon? Because I think you may be leading into your own prediction at this point. I wouldn't do such a thing. Um, So my prediction was um, big banks build their own fintechs from the inside out, and those start to reach mass adoption. And the the poster child here from me is uh, Yolt from ING, which is actually wildly popular, has more than half a million users in its own right, and its customers love it. I mean, Ross, from Pulse, you, you, you see this regularly. You guys rated it really, really highly. Highly rated, and I think just because it's intuitive, it's easy to use, people get it. It, you don't need more than that. And, and, and it gives you insights that are actionable, that are easy to understand, and ultimately actually do give you a better understanding of your finances. And, and a couple of years ago, was this ever going to be a thing? It was a spin-out from ING, and they've proven that you can do it, but they're not alone. The Dutch banks generally, you've got New10 and MoneyU from ABN. They've also got this really interesting one called Franks, which is basically the transfer-wise borderless account, but with a single IBAN, a single uh, sort of a global account number. 
really interesting innovation using the superpowers of being a large bank. Uh, and it's not just the Marcus thing. This is actually a, a direct-to-consumer brand doing something different. It's not a it's not a straight banking product. It's more of a, a service. So will we see that more and more? And the other one is uh, BBVA have Denizen and Aslo. And they're seeing real customer acquisition. I think Aslo was seeing something like 5,000 customers per month being added. So will we see this? And, and this is my prediction shift from regional tier two banks doing it in your, your sort of your Dutch banks and uh, European region. And will that move into the global tier ones where you start to see them not only do this, but succeed at doing it? And, and that's, uh, I think th- there's proof points you can point to, but that doesn't make it easy. You can build it, but they still might not come. So you have to, and that goes back to your point about the uh, the ready meal. Like, I could build it and I can try and follow the instructions. And you see that with you know, adding features to the existing mainstream app like blocking cards, uh, blocking transactions, freezing cards. Doesn't mean I understood why and how somebody came up with that feature. Whereas to do this model in order to gain user adoption, you have to understand product, you have to understand customer. I think, I think that user adoption point is the key point there, right? Because banks building new brands is not new. They've been Correct. doing that. I mean, go back to First Direct. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, that's exactly what they've been doing. And in fact, First Direct was an incredibly successful direct-to-consumer bank that, you know, didn't have any branches and they had an incredibly high NPS score and it's I, I 30 do, years old. I que- yeah, I question how successful First Direct actually is, though, if I'm honest with you. Because to have less customers than Monzo after 30 years... How many customers does First Direct have? So they've got 1.3 million. That's not less customers than Monzo. That's well, by what? More. By what? Like 100,000 well, customers? Yeah, like I mean, it, Monzo did it in three years. They yeah. did it in 30. And so Monzo is one of the, still one of the fastest growing banks in the world. They're acquiring 2,000 plus customers a day. But I think the the difference here for me is that First Direct was the same bank with a new channel, mm-hmm. and actually the new players. Uh, are not seeing digital as just a new channel to add on. It's a new operating model. Mm-hmm. So that, that breaks it. And for me, that's that difference that we talk about often between digitizing something or making it digital. Digitizing means digital is a channel for you and you can have a phone bank, you can have a branch bank and you can have a digitized bank. And that's great because that's going to be super easy to do. We've got a head of a channel over here. Look, I'm going to make you head of digital and everything's going to go hunky-dory. Well, well, and it's it's operating model, but operating cost as well. You yeah. know, like First Direct's operating cost is the same as HSBC's, just with like a bunch of northerners snapped to it for a call centre. But they're really I'm a Yorkshireman. people. They are. Lo- I'm Yorkshireman. I love Yorkshiremen. Both I'm a Yorkshireman, yeah. yeah. We're in. So but being, in a, you know, being in a situation where nothing really changes other than you paint the red bit black, like that's not innovation or success for me. Well, I, I, we can say, I can't believe I'm defending First Direct, uh, but we could say they were ahead of their time, mm. uh, yeah. both in a way that was adorably accessible, because they were the first to have that accessible language. Yeah. Um, but they Yorkshire. were also, <laughs> there was that. That's right. um, but there was also, they were ahead of their time, both in terms of the moment in time and the mm-hmm. technology available, but also the readiness for adoption. Where I will totally agree with you is that the moment came when they could have completely supercharged what they had and, and they, they let didn't. that moment pass them by again and again and again. And now it's just... And that's why I point at Yolt being the the kind of the outlier here, 500,000 customers and customers loving it because they've understood the difference, to my mind, between changing the distribution and actually changing the underlying platform. Because that point still fundamentally stands. First Direct changed nothing other than the distribution channel. Yolt are delivering actual innovation and value to customers. One that's most interesting to me is actually Digibank and DBS. So DBS coming out of their home market, going into a market they didn't operate in, and rather than going, we're going to start, you know, we're going to just, DBS is just going to expand into India, we're going to do something completely different in India because we know we've got a different market. That's a great and point. by the way, everybody in India has got a smartphone. So mm. <laughs> let's go down this road. It, it is interesting on that how many people, like, I, I, I think this is going to be the thing. It's almost like people are, I completely agree with you in terms of the prediction. Obviously, what we've been doing with Metal with NatWest is kind of down this guys, right? It's picking the thing that you're biggest at doing. And, you know, NatWest have got, RBS have got, what, 26% of the SME market. The fact that Allison chose to go after her own market with the biggest thing that they're doing in their you know the the geography that they do that most effectively with or even you know the work we did with standard charter over in hong kong like that is in the situation where they're going after a very big market of themselves and you know both dennis and i think mary the ceo of have all said you know like this is a ballsy move to do but i think it's i think to your point on your your highlight for this year jason it's actually 
the challenge of banks have basically got us to the point where big banks are like, holy shit, we actually have to do a thing. And that's great because now everybody's got a impetus to do stuff. It's not just the hustly fintech with like some motivation. You've got massive global organizations that now know they have to do. Because previously to this, you'd take your big investment proposal to the board and they'd say, so how much is this going to cost? Oh, a lot. And is it risky? Oh, it's really risky. And what, we're launching a whole new brand doing something that's never been done before? Yes. Is it going to make us a lot of money? Well, not to start off with um, and, and say, well, who else is doing this or where is it achieved scale? And previously people would say, well, well, it hasn't yet. Right. Why don't you come back to us when there's a real threat and we'll, we'll make... Now it's a lot more, it's a lot easier, I think, to point across the world and see not only some fintech start to achieve scale, but other big banks actually making moves in that direction. And we know big bank boards are, are pack animals. Yeah. Like we see the people down the road doing it. Why aren't we doing that? Yeah. Well, and, well, and you get it in the US market as well. You've got, yes, markers, but you've also got Fin by Chase. Um, and as hideous as I think that product is, um, I, I do think that it's a sign of intent and we will see more of that sorry I, it's a podcast you couldn't see the face I just pulled There's, if you want to know how, how I feel about Finn by Chase do go and read the Forbes article but they do, um, they do some nice bits like um, not sort with, of emotional attachment to money and you know but, there, but, there's but, some light gamification the, 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 the point about what they're doing is it's not my point about what Finn is doing is it's not going to upend the US mm. challenger banking market I just don't think it is but, but all of the big banks that are at different points in the like weirdness curve aren't they <laughs> you know, like, yeah. so actually like the, the Chase one is like it's that weird like like you dye your hair blonde kind of phase type thing and actually like they'll mature through I it and it's I- blue David it's blue okay so <laughs> yeah. alright moving on yeah. um, well I was gonna I was gonna where you were I was gonna say you were leading into your own prediction beautifully so how how might one go about um, creating a digital bank David what would you what would one need to do beyond just distribution uh, like I feel like I'm being led into something I can't remember what I was gonna say mm-hmm. no I'm joking um, so I think being for me I think it's a continuation of what I've been excited by this year, if I'm honest with you. I, I actually think um, the fact that uh, DMB and Lloyd's have kind of come out and said it means there's probably like 10 others who are kind of doing this stuff in the background or at least really thinking about it. You know, we, we've been approached a bunch of times where people have been, look, prior to this, it's like 700 million pounds for us to even think about touching our core banking system. And now they're actually... And are. it might not work. Yeah, and now, and, and that's the thing. And actually, I was concerned that something like TSB would actually move more and more people into their shell about actually doing anything from a major systems uh, change perspective. But I think what it seems to have done is actually spearheaded people into doing it differently. Um, so I, I think my, you know, my prediction actually is more of the same that we've had this year, but actually more and more of them actually kind of coming to market. So it's going to be maybe not the uh, the primary. We're going to like you know get rid of everything that we've got in our back office and actually start again. But we're definitely going to see a combination of what you two guys have said in terms of the the front of house stuff. Actually, in terms of new fintech players coming to market, but more importantly, it's actually the creation of the real sort of next generation platforms that all of this stuff sits on that means actually it's a scalable thing in terms of where we're doing because you know both in terms of Marcus's uh, piece but many of the other ones you know Metal included in what we've done it's not really what we've done it's the way that we've done it uh, and it means what you can actually do off the back of that is even greater than what you've done today uh, and that, that's a sort of sustainability in engineering for me is is everything and, and there's a way I think what we've what we've started to see particularly in Europe or I've seen in Europe as well is the combination of the two so the big bank sort of wants to replatform is quite scared about it so decides to explore a new platforming technology by standing up a new bank and watching what happens over there and I, and I don't I, I don't know honestly how sustainable that is but I quite like the idea that okay we're not going to do it in time we're not going to switch everything all at once but let's start something new over here see how this technology works and then maybe in the future well, that bank becomes the main bank exactly and logical I think, well I think I think that's the thing though <laughs> I think before though it was seen as how can you put something over there and then reintegrate it mm-hmm. and actually I think what we've seen the switch to is how can that thing be everything uh, and the great thing is is when you've created that thing the thing that it is I'm using the word thing a lot uh, it has a different culture bank. it has a different rhythm it has a has a very no if I say bank people oh, get no. upset sometimes so I stop saying bank thing. just it's in a case thing. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Naz shouts at me when I say bank I've stopped but I think it's um it's that classic Mark Andreessen quote, you know, the battle between every startup and incumbent comes down to whether the startup gets distribution, gets scale, before the incumbent gets innovation, it transforms. 
over the last couple of years, we've seen every bank come along and say, we're going to spend a billion on transformation. We're going to spend two billion. And then the next year, we're going to spend a billion. We're going to spend two. You know, BBVA has been doing it since 2007, like when the, the chairman said that was the moment that he decided that, that things would, would have to be different. So that's what, 11 years of, uh, of transformation. So that, that transformation is never going to beat the startup's growth to scale unless you break that and you say, actually, we've got distribution. And actually, if by innovation, we have to be a startup because they're the perfect vehicle for doing that, then you get the best of both worlds. We've got millions of customers, we've got lots of capital. And actually, we either need to acquire, to grow, to partner or make our own startup to make that happen. I think BBVA did sort of get it half right at first. And then now we're looking at the second part. So the half right was you know, best uh, user experience in their apps, best API marketplace. Like, if if there's a thing that everybody's now trying to do, they've already done it and they've done it quite well. So the table stake stuff they got to first. They have been a leader amongst the incumbents. But now you see, I think it was with uh, Atom, they've announced that they're going to work with Thought Machine. So there's another one, and this comes right to the heart of your point a moment ago, David, which is there's this fully operating organization over here that's looking after customers soup to nuts and behind that there's an entirely new tech platform which goes to you know the previous choice was i go from my existing legacy vendor and legacy platform and i try and migrate all of my customers and all of my products in all of my geographies and all of my channels and all of my branches and all of my people to this new legacy vendor and it's like but why? What do I tangibly get from that? Yeah, we ha- we have you know, it, like you say, it's moving away from that lipstick on a pig, mm-hmm. right? But we we did see this like the foreshadowing a little bit. We did see this when mobile banking came along because actually it was so different. There was there needed to be different architecture. There needed to be actual APIs for people to like do things. Um, and I think it was it was such a radical change that people knew they had to completely rethink how they did it to get there. It's just the the gap between where they need to be and where they are now is so much more significant. It means that they need a completely different platform, a completely different culture. But, to but that's the point, right? To get to that realization, you almost needed the time and and money and headspace to get it wrong. And BBVA is an incredible example because they, unlike many others who have spent the same amount and the same time and actually not gotten their hands as dirty, BBVA have tried a variety of different models. Some worked really well, some didn't. But through that iteration, they are visibly from their choices getting to the realization that you're going to have to do the thing differently for different reasons on different technology. Uh, The massive shout out for them is that there was actually genuine muscle behind everything they tried, unlike many of their peers and competitors who just focused on the very expensive lipstick on the pig. Uh, But seeing that they're pivoting in their direction that well, we, we think is right, but we're also seeing our own partners pivot towards it's, it's good for the market. All right. We are going to take a quick break now to hear from our sponsors. I wonder if a robot will be driving us to work in the future. They say robots could become more intelligent than humans, which can only be a good thing, right? Stephen Hawking said the rise of robots could be disastrous for mankind. Well, I'm looking forward to robots doing the hard parts of my job. If they're smarter than you, they might kick you out of your job. Artificial intelligence. Innovation or invasion. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash subscribe today. Today... Customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Now, Jason, you're up. What have you got for us? What's your Mm. prediction? I really struggle with predictions. Uh, I have a tendency to see the direction of travel and think, oh, it'll all happen really quickly. And I think through the last few years, and I'm sure we've done this before, um, it it follows a direction of travel, but a lot slower than you'd expect. 
So I think my my prediction is that large incumbents are going to continue to struggle with this existential question as to what they're really going to do in the digital world. Like, do they want to do uh, intelligence services direct to consumers? Do they want to be the platform walled garden and get other people sort of in there to do that? How are they going to leverage their scale? Are they going to be just the balance sheet and the back end to this, you know, to a, a whole new set of things? So I think we're going to see all kinds of announcement investments, partnerships, integrations, sub-brands. We're going to see people trying things. You know, as a, a client said recently, big banks haven't had to do business strategy with a big S for a very long time. It's all been little S. It's all been like, well, what will our teaser rate be versus those yeah. guys? And mm. what will our marketing campaign look like? Now it's strategy with a big S. I mean, this is just a whole new game. So uh, I think that's going to be interesting from an external perspective, from an internal perspective within the banks. We've already you know, got our hands dirty and seen this, that there's going to be a crazy amount of work needed on the governance, risk, compliance, management, like what, how does the SMR regime like really relate to someone who's releasing a, a brand new product that can have all kinds of interesting risks and, and opportunities. Um, so I think that outside we're going to see all this stuff, inside it's going to be like a, you know the swan on the water. The legs are going to be going crazy to try and push this thing along. But I think that's what's needed to happen for a while, surely. When you look at some of the the the, the, the decisions that have been made and the announcements that have been made to us, we kind of go, well, this, that's clearly never going to take off because we, they've not put any money aside for rewriting their governance processes, or you know. Um, and when we've seen, we've, we're still seeing big banks come a cropper with things they should know better. So we've had today about Santander being fined for not giving people the money of their their dead relatives back as they should have done I mean that's that's not new that's a government you should have been doing that for however many years so for me the governance piece is really interesting internal governance and also how the regulators are going to respond as well when the big guys start doing these things well we, we've had you know we've had big banks joke to us that there's like 15 committees to get a decision about even thinking about the meeting about the investment for the thing and then it's like oh my god like you Sounds know like, right. these these are the things that you need to fix type thing but um, you well, know you just got a universe of you know, global risk management frameworks overseen by committees. There are more than 100 risk committees in some of the, the global banks but, but who, who all have responsibility for making sure that customers are treated fairly, that no one goes to prison, that they do all the things. So it's great to have like uh, Johnny Fintech come along and say, great, we're going to do this new thing. There's a lot of people above who wow. can say, well, hold on a minute, Johnny Fintech. But I think there's two things there, though. That uh, that sort of committee structure worked for an industrial uh, kind of revolution era production line way of doing things where you had branches and those branches reported into a local office, into a regional office, and that had a committee that went up to a, a central office. And that sort of structure made sense. In this fast-moving environment with increased complexity, trying to do everything with you know a drop-down list of spreadsheets where we run through each point just doesn't make sense. And I think the way in which we manage risk culturally is in fact a conduct risk itself. The way in which we register a risk and then put a mitigant in place and that's on a spreadsheet and we can show it to the regulator doesn't mean I've actually done the right thing for the customer. 100%, but you said the magic word, right? Up until very recently, the regulator would treat you with due consideration and a sense of relief if you could demonstrate that you did the right checks in a pre-agreed manner. You had so, a process, not effective process. Exactly. And and the, the comfort that you get from this has led to the committees and the spreadsheets as the regulator is very much changing the way they assess the quality of what you've done. Quite a lot of people are left at a loss because they're the risk specialists, but the only world they've ever known is what you've just described. And changing that is, a, is the most radical exercise. The platform will be easier to change. Strategy with a big S, to Jason's point, will actually be easier to change than the mentality of how do I understand, track and measure risk in, in this world. And, and that's a fascinating area to, to well, focus on. And I think that the interesting thing there as well is um, how regulators like the FCA are, are trying to work on that. So I've been quite close to their digital, digital regulatory reporting team, which doesn't sound particularly exciting. But it, when you think when you listen to them and what they're actually trying to do and what they've achieved as a regulator working in sprints with a team of like 12 in three months, they've built all these really interesting prototypes. So they're showing that they can work in this manner as well. And I think that's kind of reassuring to me as well as that they're they're willing to work 
they, they understand the way they're assessing people is changing and that's going to be difficult for the big banks, but they want to make it as easy as possible as well. They, they want to help. Um, so, and I think what I would like to see, which I should have said, and damn it, I didn't, uh. is more regulators following, uh, following the FCA's example and actually genuinely wanting to learn from them rather than just saying, well, we'll copy it once you've done all the work, guys. I think the age of lobbying to not have to change my core systems is quickly coming to an end. Uh, and I think that excuse is going to slowly die in which you now have challenger banks who can rapidly solve a problem that happens in the market because their systems are able to identify, detect, prevent all of that sort of stuff. And the processes they've built around it are built with an engineering mindset rather than offshoring engineering to be low cost. Engineers are part of the problem solving unit, as are the risk people. And I think that cultural change is really critical. But that's the sort of thing you get if you change your tech. I mean, it really does come down to tech and culture. And everybody's close to the problem, right? Everybody gets the contacts and everybody's working, pulling in the same direction to solve that problem the right way. It's not that you've got that disintermediation, like you said, with the offshoring companies. And Lida, you're up. What you got for us? Um, I, I'm a bit like Jason. I don't, I don't much like predictions. Um, I don't like being wrong, right? No, it's not that. It's, 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 the, it's all up for a fail at the beginning. The, the industry has, um, has surprised us. And, and what I'm about to say is, is both a prediction and a little bit of a, of a wish. Um, so if you look back... If you look back about 10 years, children, we saw that um, the way Johnny Fintech, I'm going to use that, uh, started changing the conversation is about really focusing on the consumer and, and sort of forcing the big players to look at this thing because they went directly to the consumer, created the sort of customer centricity thing that we should have been thinking about but weren't. And then as that conversation established itself, we saw more and more startups coming to the table and and focusing on profitability and digitization and making the center of the conversation, the business people inside the bank saying, look, I can help you get better at this thing. I can help you make more money. I think the next thing that we're already seeing is um, a shift to focus on the developers. If you really want to supercharge what it is you're doing as a provider, you need to, to start focusing on the developer experience. And that has not been a thing we had language for inside banks for a very long time. Um, I remember first mentioning it to a, a big bank about five years ago, and the, the, even the IT leadership laughed. Um, I don't think anyone's laughing anymore. I think the realization that it, that's where your success lies and, and that's where your success as a provider and, and integrator lies, providing that amazing developer experience. Um, we're going to see more and more of that. And the, the real success of propositions that rely on others integrating into them will be not on the profitability narrative and all that cool stuff, but on how well they understand that community. And I think you can see that in the Stripe, Stripe.com valuation, valued at over 20 billion because developers love it and the difference in the banking mentality of yes tick we have an api is very different to we have an api that developers love and this is growing and we have an whole ecosystem around it sort of ticking the box is not enough anymore that like that's a thing where copying somebody else and thinking you've done the same i think there is a gap in terms of management knowledge at the senior executive level of understanding the difference between my tech people tell me we have one of those and the developers that would need to use this platform will love this thing. So, so we've had, so I've had quite a lot of experience recently, which is heartening. I think where people have come to me and said, "What does a good developer portal look like?" So I've been talking to people about open banking for since PSD two was first even thought of, and it's always been kind of quite technical. Oh my god, we've got to do this thing. We've got to meet what the regulator said. We've got to be there. And then more recently, we had people come to us and said, "Look, we've done what we've been told, but we we need to know what a good portal looks like. What's a jo- uh, what a what a good developer portal looks like? They can access it where they understand it, where it's easy to use." It's friendly. Um, and actually, um, w- with the idea of treating developers as, as, as customers. So there's, they are consuming. Your developers, external developers, are consuming your services. So you, you can't just be focusing on what your retail customers or your SME customers or your corporate customers have. As you said, those developers become your customers. And the fact that the banks, some of them, are, well, not necessarily just banks, but big financial organizations have been like, how do we do this and how do we do it right? Now, at, right now, I don't actually have the answer to that. But I do know that I can point at things like Stripe or I can point at Google or even people like Visa and say, and BBVA, these are some ideas. But it's an interesting one. You don't have the answer because it has not been a question that was asked adequately. And yet there are people in our very office who could give you very compelling answers as to as to what um, a good developer experience uh, looks like, what thoughtful developer experience looks like. I think what no, what is happening... God, don't ask don't, you to do that, honestly. You'll be like four hours in like... I think four, 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 <laughs> four hours is probably um, conservative. I think the... Um, 
the creativity that will be unleashed by asking people who have not been asked before what good looks like is uh, is going to be a, a sight to behold. But but I also think that we're getting to this through the the pain that leads to realization, which is we built it. They did not come. We have one of those things and it didn't do the thing that you told us it would. And and by peeling away that first layer, we're realizing that actually as business people, we need to do quite a lot more learning about where value is generated. I think the, the hard part on that, though, and, it, and, you know, Simon, you talk about cargo cults a lot. I, you know, I think we saw this in the branch uh, sort of transformation days where people copied the thing that they thought it was, not the thing that it actually is. So we had lovely veneered floors and all the sort of nonsense that came with it. Cult. Yeah. So actually being in that situation where you had that, you know, lovely like wooden desks and things and Wi-Fi and coffee, but like now it's still not an apple store guys like, <laughs> but I, I think the, the thing to kind of come back on the on that I, I think the banks are going to find it almost impossible to create an engineering culture because actually not just for external parties like people consuming your apis but internally like the requirements around the skill sets that you need to do these things are fundamentally different and the the challenge that you have is banks have commoditized skill sets that they don't understand which means that Indian offshoring was a thing for a period of time. Like, you know, Jason, we've sat in a meeting before where somebody's gone, like, we love all of this, but we, you know, we've got like 60 pounds a day for a developer. And if it's any more than that, we're like, we can't do it. And I'm like, well... That's not going to work. Yeah, <laughs> I will see you in a cartoon, you know? <laughs> that, that point that Lida made, I think, is, is really important generally as well, though, in, in, in financial institutions, but in all organizations, is speak to the people who actually haven't been asked a question before. So go to the people who are on the coalface, if you like, in whichever part of your organization because they'll probably have a million ideas about how to make those processes better, you know, how to make compliance easier, how to ensure that governance works more smoothly, how how to make your, your life easier if you're a developer. But I think this is a thing of its time as well. Again, go back to industrial revolution or electrification. It's like engineers and electricians were the people who then created the next generation of businesses and moved things along. And so there's this thing that I'm interested in as to how long engineering culture will be a thing up to the point where executives come with enough digital knowledge that actually they're driving business performance and customer outcomes because they just grok they understand how this whole thing works because then i think it'll be less about selling to end engineers or developers and more more about that's just the way business happens so rather than it being like the best engineer creates a great company and this was in the 19th century and they had a steam engine and and it made (laughs) cotton a lot faster and but the only person who really understood how that worked was an engineer so therefore they became CEO and grew that thing. It got to a point where it was common enough and people sort of saw it work enough that actually it was now about digital executives, not about engineering yeah. culture. It's but, just about the way business is done. But, yeah. but I think, though, it, uh, like in a 100,000-person organization, you know, we've seen everybody's like hired some dude from Google or like, you know, yeah. tamed a fintech and brought them or across. Megan from Starling. Yeah, you know, like, and yeah, but, you know, mega move into Barclays. Uh, but like the reality of that is one person can only make so much difference. And actually when there's way more of them than there are of you, it's a really, really difficult thing to, to okay. enforce that change. Like we, you know, and that's why, I, you know, I sort of say about that change cycle, you know, we've seen them all go through this stuff. And, you know, I, I do, I do think it will be an interesting one as, banks kind of relax their salary caps a little bit and you know the regulator allows that to happen a little bit more and they can you know tease more and more people out of really big fintechs to go and do interesting things whether they can make a difference is really going to be a challenge not the interesting thing is are they going to try and pull these people into the familiar shape and and what we're seeing is that the things that they do and the people they pull in and we've all been part of this in one way or another either through the things we design and sell or through our own careers is you're brought in for your Difference, but they try to slot you into yeah. a shape that is familiar. Yeah. Um, there have been some amazing examples of banks not doing that. Obviously, our work with, mm. with both um, RBS NatWest and with DMB show that people get it, people are shifting away. But when it comes specifically to talent, you have to question whether the realization that we need digital executives is also coming with the realization that we need a different way of coalescing and organizing and all of those changes having to happen at the same time as replatforming and doing strategy with a big S and doing risk in a different way, it's 
it's overwhelming. Sounds like a lot. Makes, yeah. Can we start in January? I'm, I'm tired yeah. already. <laughs> well, but it makes the argument for why you have to do it outside the mothership far enough, but protect it, but don't dabble, do it properly. And I think that that's the kind of the key thing here is if you dabble and you have innovation theater and finger vein technology and Costa coffee cups that you can make payments with, you might grab a headline, but you won't transform your business. Whereas if you do something external and you have a portfolio of those, some are likely to survive and some may even grow to be big enough to start to make a material impact on your business in the five-year time frame and in the 10-year time frame they start to look a lot like huh so could i just move the customers i've got on this platform would they want to opt into a materially better product over there mm-hmm. the old migration questions and the big bangs start to go away and the mindset shifts and creativity and problem solving starts to come in and that's what makes me hopeful for 2019 all right last but by no means least we have mr gallagher what have you got for us prediction wise Wow. Thanks for that. <laughs> By no means least. In this company, in, there would be nothing wrong with being consumer <laughs> I, th- I, I thought you were objecting. I thought that was quite a complimentary no, 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 introduction. No, no, that's terrific. That's really good. It, it was like, it was just a very large platform. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he looks visibly scared. Yeah, like. yeah. No, that's We're expecting great. great things now. Come on. Yeah, I know. So I think, look, reflecting on, I think, a lot of the, the, the things that we've, we've sort of mentioned about 2018, I mean, you know, in the UK, fintech is sexy. It's popular. There's been ample access to VC funding. So I'm thinking, looking forward to 2019, what are we looking at in terms of the future of that competition? Because the flip side is that the fintech space in the UK now is pretty noisy. It's pretty crowded. You know, we've talked about proving the use case around product market fit. We've talked about proving the use case around scale. What's the next step? And I'm wondering if we're going to see more of an intense, intensive drive towards like aiming for profitability now and actually standing on their own two feet rather than relying on VC funding because it's a risk. There's a lot, sorry. sorry. Do you think they'll be pushed that way by their VCs is my question, was my question. And maybe we're not quite there yet. I mean, you know, in terms of like their expected returns, maybe that's not going to happen in 2019. I'm more sort of raising the question. I think um, the challenge is there's going to be more demands on on VC funds. Um, And I think inevitably these guys are going to have to stand on their own two feet. Banking's a capital-intensive industry, and ultimately you have to hit scale. We're moving towards hitting that scale, and then you can hit profitability. But I just wanted to throw it out there. What does the future of that competition look like? I think, I think the question for me is, it, it is it's one that we've been, we've been talking about for, for a long time, and I completely agree that there has to be a push towards eventually. But we've seen some sort of miss not missteps this year but some sort of a sad sad examples yeah. not sad examples but i'm thinking about funding circle um and how they did ipo and it did work um but you know not at the valuation that they thought they were going to get and not at the, not the sustained uh, share price they thought they were going to get and um i question whether and i, I think leader and i've talked about this a bit before but like whether giving companies such high valuation whether vcs giving companies such high valuations is actually a good thing mm. and, and those valuations sort of, are vanity metrics right like yeah they, until you actually exit and realize, you know, it doesn't mean anything. And, you know, look at iZettle ultimately pulling out of their IPO. But I think you have to look at it uh, not in isolation, but as an asset class compared to where else are you going to put your money? So, Sarah, here's your 100 million. Are you going to put it in the stock market at the moment? Are you going to buy bonds at the moment? Uh, you know, real estate, all, you know, host give of it things. All to Marcus. Um, <laughs> part of what's. <laughs> Part of what's driving the valuations of these businesses up is actually the, the competition between VCs to invest in the hot, you know, the hot new thing. So uh, VCs don't want to give you know, crazy valuations on, on the things that they invest in. They want enough, but they need to make to know that they're going to make 50 times back potentially on, on their investment. So I think that there's something here around uh, what else is, uh, where else is capital being deployed? The, the fact that, that there will be some big winners in fintech, I think most people are, you know, agree with that. And the fact that actually there, is, there are the opportunities to invest in a variety of them at the moment because they're all capital hungry, mm-hmm. I think actually pushes the game more towards towards a, like, become the dominant player scale will provide you with whatever money you need, understanding that you have to also convince us that there is a thesis by which you can make positive unit economics and actually make this turn around. But assuming you can, don't make profit now. Like, we'll, you know, we'll just go for it. And here's the next 
stack of cash. I think there's this myth in big banking that startups do everything overnight, that they're overnight successes and that they've become wildly profitable and they've got this incredible cost-income ratio just because they use new technology. What they miss is that success is lots of years of hard work, of not being profitable, of driving for growth and doing things that a big bank just wouldn't think of doing, like concierging or like there's all of these tools in the toolbox that a startup does to, they're trying to identify the product that will grow versus trying to grow a product they thought they understood. And I think that's a fundamentally different mindset. And once people get that, it's about kind of what can I do to make this product pivot as quickly as possible whilst it's still small, find that thing that customers absolutely love and scale that instead of scaling the thing that two years ago in a strategy meeting four people thought was quite a nice idea. So are we going to see in terms of we talked about big winners there's going to be some high profile losers are we Simon to your point are we talking about that in terms of winners are we talking about who finds best product market fit and can scale it or are we talking about who's best at raising money I've bit of both, right? You're going to need both, surely. And I think you've got more sources of capital. But I also think we've, we're coming off a, a bull market of VC investment that won't be around forever. Yeah. Some of it started to mature. If you're looking at the five to seven year investment cycle of fintech, that's all reaching maturity. Mm-hmm. So the interesting question is, is where next? Because I think payments has been proven to work. Lending has sort of got there. Challenger banks on the consumer end have started to happen. The SME end's a bit behind it. So what comes next? Well, crypto, obviously. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> But, but My honest answer to that question is corporate investment banking. Uh, yeah. I really think that space is is ripe for innovation. I, I think, Two predictions. I think, I think wealth. Oh. I don't. I don't. I don't think corporate investments there yet. I think wealth is the one. I think actually. Yeah, I think the wealth management. wealth space. And I don't mean like robo advice. I mean more like holistic wealth management because it's actually very similar to other areas that we've treated. It's just slightly different in terms of the tone. So you know the the sort of concierge kind of feel to something that you can actually do where you can talk to somebody 24-7 like give me Babylon for money and uh, actually you've got quite an interesting proposition you know? it actually ties together a lot of what we've talked about here is the kind Did of the, uh, yeah really Jesus <laughs> well done Man, we, we went full arc <laughs> the, but the idea, the idea of what you want in terms of a service is something that helps you holistically mm-hmm. um, we actually did some work recently in a report that's coming out in fact before Christmas fingers crossed and went out and asked people what they actually this is consumers what they actually want and for the more advanced users who'd got their head around the likes of Yolt who'd got their head around you know kind of these these apps it was help me make more money basically help me manage my wealth so tell me what to do with it did, do they, I- did they sort of scream it at you <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. help me make more money please um, but, but that's really interesting that that is actually the next level of what certainly the, the, the European retail consumers want it's like we've got money management brilliant we know where our bills are coming from we understand PFM we understand Challenger Banks we've got it wonderful now help me make more of what I've got and I think that kind of was where that ties in when we've been talking about some of these new apps these new banks what the services they're going to provide are it's going to have to be that kind of the Robin Hood free trade thing starts to become uh, the thing everybody wants to copy I'd love to claim that's what I meant but you're way smarter than I am Sarah Mm -hmm. so like go with that All right. What she said, what she said. (laughs) Okay. Well, on that note, I'm going to wrap us up. Um, Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast and drop us a review on iTunes. We love reading those reviews. So if you have any questions for 11FS, please hassle my good friend and colleague, Ross Gallagher, because I'm going away for three weeks. So I'm not going to look at my email. So if you have any questions, comments, concerns about the podcast, please do email Ross at 11FS. Or phone him on his mobile phone number. Yeah, you can use his mobile number if you like. 07310. My postcode. (laughs) You can write him a letter. He loves postcards. Um, No, but seriously, you can find him on Ross at 11FS.com. You can also find him on RossG at 11FS.com if you want to branch out there that's R-O-S-S-G-U-H um, and probably on Twitter as well at Ross Gallagher 7 anybody else got a Twitter handle they want to share sure get me on David Breer on Twitter at Jason Bates at S.Y. Taylor at Lee Glipless and I'm at Sarah Koshansky thank you very much for listening that's all for this week 